In this episode of our award-winning podcast, we'll continue our discussions about workplace violence. Before the pandemic, according to the American Hospital Association, 75% of workplace assaults occurred in healthcare. And according to the American Nurses Association, verbal assaults against nurses have risen from 59% to 70% in just two years. Welcome to Modern Practice. I'm your host, Dr. Tom Villanueva, Senior Principal for Operations and Quality at Vizient and Practicing Internist. Joining me again is Diana Scott, Principal of Accreditation and Regulatory at Vizian. Diana, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. So last week when I was in the Midwest, I had a nurse that came to me. She was off shift and she was telling me about how in the prior week, a nurse that was doing her same shift in the emergency room was stabbed. And this is an established and experienced healthcare provider who is seriously considering leaving the business. Can you give us some other examples of how this affects other healthcare workers? Yeah, and unfortunately, that is not an unusual occurrence as far as people leaving the industry, even physicians. We're talking most commonly around nursing. It seems to be a real focus area, but it happens to physicians as well. And we know physicians who've said, oh, this is so not worth it and I'm done. So this can have both physical and emotional impact to people. And we can have an acute short-term kind of an impact, or it can be chronic and long-term. I know of one organization who said that they were offering to any employee who'd been impacted by workplace violence, professional counseling for the rest of their their life, not just for three months or six months, but lifetime. They were offering to support that individual for the rest of their life, which I thought was just incredible. And so again, the intensity of these injuries can be short-term, long-term, they can be minor or serious, and it has a ripple effect. So not only to the individual, but it can create a sense of just low morale in that department. And of course, those kind of things are typically never kept under the umbrella of just one unit. So usually it can have overflow into other areas of the hospital just feeling like we're not safe here. It could impact people's productivity. If you're constantly worrying, you're looking over your shoulder, it's very difficult to do your job, right? Absolutely. Also, loss of trust in your management team. So number one, it can be that kind of an accusatory thing, like how could you allow this to happen here? Or I don't feel supported after it happened. Just a general increase in stress. But the sad part of it, in addition to that, is not only at work, but it does tend to overflow into your personal life as well. So just because you cross the threshold doesn't mean that all of those emotions are turned off. So a lot of times it leads to other kind of family turmoil as well. So it's just an incredible ripple effect. And we don't want to minimize the financial impact of that too, both for the healthcare organization in lost time, absenteeism. It can result in staff leaving, which we already talked on. So there's a financial impact, but also to that individual who's now has to address whatever either physical or emotional needs is impacting their ability to continue to support their family or themselves. So there's definitely some financial implications to this as well. So where in the hospital is this most likely to occur? Well, there's no limit, right? There's no specific location, but there are some things that are contributing factors that makes it easier in certain locations in the organizations. 
And some of the specific units are more likely than others, perhaps. So one of the things that should be considered is just physical environment. There's places in the organization where you could have dead-end space, meaning that it's an alcove. It could be where people are not normally going to be able to see someone. Stairwells, again, you don't have line of sight of that particular area. It can be areas where you have a lot of weapons at your disposal, right? Mm-hmm, sure. And those can be simple things like furniture. If you have furniture that's not secured or bolted down, decorations, office supplies, pens, scissors, all those kind of things that we take for granted as just a normal part of daily operations. All those kinds of things can turn into be weapons. The other factors is just the patient population itself. We can certainly know that behavioral health and that patient population tends to be one of those that are higher risk than others. Also, those patients coming through the emergency department, which you never know what that's going to be. Those areas just have a natural tendency to have a heightened incidence because not only is it the things we've talked about, unfortunately, when you turn on any kind of media, television, radio, whatever it might be, it is always these incidences of violence in your community. So you have a patient that you're dealing with, but then you can also have the perpetrators, right? We have a lot of issues related to gangs and drug deals gone bad, that kind of thing, where you have these people who may be following the victim into your emergency department and the opportunity for escalating violence in those situations. And one of the things that we're not real great about doing for our behavioral health population is taking time to really identify with that individual. So what happens when we have a patient that's at risk for either self-harm or harm to others is we are evaluating that individual and then we're doing what we think is right to keep them safe, right? But in the meantime, there's a lot of literature out there about the value of connecting with people. Right. We're really trying to establish a relationship so that you can identify those escalating risk factors. And so those types of things where the patient starts pacing, the patient gets louder, all of those kind of signals and awareness that if you actually have someone who's cued in, who's been educated, and even better, has a relationship established with that patient, you catch those things so much faster and quicker to de-escalate the situation and prevent those episodes of violence that we are seeing. You mentioned about pacing and the patient's voice getting louder. I can even say that sometimes if they start getting belligerent, but are there other red flags towards violence that most likely will happen? You can kind of look at the nonverbal cues as far as facial expression. Are they hitting, not people, but inanimate objects? pounding on the wall, hitting the table, those kind of things that are visible cues. But you can also think about, are there verbal cues that you want to tune into and start identifying? Hearing people's frustration, both words as well as behavioral signs of frustration. There's a lot of discussion too about identifying patients or people who are coming into the organization that have a history of violence. Mm -hmm. And it's a very controversial topic, which I think is 
is interesting in regards to, do we want to place those labels on people, right? Does that then create an automatic bias as to how we would treat them versus taking it as a proactive approach saying, hey, we want to know if this person has some violence in their past, we have anecdotal experience, whatever it may be, so that we are alert and we are more tuned to this particular patient. The other side being, we don't want to bias our caregivers to assume that the patient would act in the same way in a repeat presentation to the organization. So we talked about awareness. Let's talk about how organizations can help with mitigating the problem. So are there some quick, clear, easy step organizations can actually take to stop violence? So I don't know that there's a lot out there about stopping it per se. However, there are some things that organizations are doing to identify, to minimize, mitigate situations. So some organizations have escalated the concept of identification badges. So you have to present at the door who you are, where you're going, how long are you going to be there, what time is it when you check in. Some places do actually have a limit to how long somebody can be in the organization, and they want to know all the places that person intends to go. So much more oversight of people accessing the building. And I talked just a moment ago about identification of patients with previous history. That's another strategy. And then having emergency solutions throughout the organization. I was going to say in the emergency department, but not just there. So things like knowing where panic alarms are, or if you're an organization assessing, do you need more panic alarms? And there's also difference of thoughts in regards to panic alarms and panic buttons. One being the more visible they are, it's a natural deterrent because you can see that you have a means of calling for help instantly, right? On the other hand, there's a thought that, oh, they should be more subtle. You don't want to escalate the situation by people thinking that you need help or you want more people to show up, that kind of thing. So again, it's another area where there's two trains of thought there with that. And then making sure that your organization is in good repair, meaning that you don't have loose panes. Usually we don't have glass too much anymore in an organization, but anything that's broken where you could actually use it as a weapon, you want to make sure your doors do in fact lock. And you know there's a door that doesn't always lock because of the air pressure in the organization. Right. So it's those kind of things of making sure that what's secured is secured, that it works the way it's supposed to. And lighting, making sure you've evaluated the lighting, not only internally, but also surrounding your building. Are your parking areas well lit? Looking at the foliage around the building as far as you making sure there's not places where people could hide and jump out when people are coming outdoors. All those kind of things that organizations organizations can do to minimize or mitigate an opportunity. So what are some policies organizations can adopt and actions that they can take? So we are seeing policies that are specific to reporting, Mm -hmm. things that address the culture of the organization, encouraging people to report, making it easy for them to report, making education a priority. This is usually one of the things that I emphasize tremendously and whether it's in this venue or another. I think when you really talk to any of the health care providers that are doing education, they will tell you that there's a difference between pushing out a 
education and people embracing it, right? Yes, absolutely. And so the best prevention is people being educated. All the things we just talked about. And simple as if this door doesn't lock when it is supposed to, to notifying people, making sure that it's responded to. So education of employees, anyone who's under, again, the roof of that organization, so that they buy into the importance and the relevance of the issue and how they can protect themselves and others. So staff education, it's not just education, it's buying in to the concept that this is important. I have a responsibility to know this information so that I can protect myself, others, and my patients. I think the use of examples are also where you personalize that of where you yourself threaten violence or God forbid even sustain violence, but having that transparency is going to be important in getting that message out. Yes, absolutely. Dana, thanks for this discussion, and we'll continue it in our next episode. And to our listeners, you can contact Diana at her email address in the resource section of our podcast page. And please note, Visian offers an objective assessment of your workplace violence prevention program, and please contact Diana for any additional information. If you have any additional questions pertaining to modern practice, or you simply want to send us your comments, please contact me at our email, modernpracticepodcast.com. And please join us for other Modern Practice Podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, and send us your comments. I'm Dr. Tom Villanueva. Thank you so much for listening.